Thanks. Uh, people usually begin these talks by thanking everyone for inviting them to come. I can't really do that because, to be honest, I really invited myself. I asked Rick, hey, can I get on the schedule? And he said, he said sure, just talk to Julie and find an open date. So um, I can't really say that, that I got one of the cherished invitations that scholars from around the country get to come to Mershon and talk about their research. But I am delighted um, that Rick didn't say no when I proposed the idea. And, and I'm also grateful that so many people came out. I know there's a lot of things going on this time of year. Um, the, I had this um, paper circulated in advance for anyone who had an opportunity to read it. Uh, I hope some of you had a chance to take a look at it, but I certainly don't assume that, that most uh, of you did. So what I want to offer today is a, a fairly compressed version of this. Um, let me tell you about the origins of this. This really isn't a product of a broader research project, but this is one of those essays that we get called upon to do from time to time because good friends and colleagues say, could you write an essay on this for this project? And the project, which was a, vo uh, a volume being put together by um, Melvin Laffler of the University of Virginia and Arnie Westad of the London School of, of uh, Economics, is a very ambitious one. It's going to be called The Cambridge History of the Cold War. It's going to be three volumes. There are some 70, 75 scholars involved, even a handful of political scientists. Uh, Bob Jervis is involved, among others. Um, it, it's being referred to, at least in their publicity advertisements, as what will be a comprehensive, systematic, analytic overview of the conflict that shaped the international system and that affected most of humankind during the second half of the 20th century. It is, it is intended to be a truly international um, compilation of essays, and there are a lot of scholars involved from uh, outside the United States, uh, Canadian scholars, British scholars, Chinese, Japanese, Korean scholars, German scholars, um, Russian scholars. It, it's a pretty interesting cast of characters. And, and the topic that um, fell on my lap, as it were, was to do a piece in 8,500 words, inclusive of footnotes, which if you've looked at the paper, you can see are very, very light. That was at the editor's insistence for all of these essays uh, to, to make sense out of national security policy under the administrations of Eisenhower and Kennedy. And my editors gave me some pretty specific instructions. Deal with threat perceptions. Deal with resource allocations. Compare and contrast the strategies of the two administrations. Talk about ways in which the international system might have constrained what they sought to do or might have offered opportunities for what they sought to do. Offer some evaluation of these uh, two different administrations. So my task was, was to make sense of this. I, I have written um, around the topic. I, I've, I've written a bit on U.S. relations with the third world, especially in Asia during the Eisenhower and uh, Kennedy administrations, but I've never really tackled directly the nuclear issues which are so central in looking at national security planning during this period. So I thought it would be an interesting challenge to try and 
make sense of the avalanche of secondary literature that exists on these issues, uh, a fairly contentious literature, and uh, figure out what I thought about them and try and offer something that would be succinct but also analytical and not at least um, embarrassingly um, oversimplified. This was intended uh, to be partly synthetic and also partly original. And so what, 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 I, what I do at the outset is try and compare um, the way in which Eisenhower approached security with the first Cold War president, Harry Truman. And I argue that there's a strong commonality, certainly in terms of general threat perception, that each of those administrations believed that the, the Soviet Union presented a very serious threat to the United States. It was viewed as an implacable adversary. Its military strength was mounting just as worrisome. Its ideological appeal was very positive, especially in many parts of the third world. And in many respects, it posed not just a fundamental threat, but you could say an existential threat to US national security. The emergence of an equally hostile and militant uh, China, the People's Republic of China in 1949, just complicated the task of American policymakers. And so the, the issue for that Truman ultimately faced and that uh, Eisenhower and Kennedy would face is how precisely to assess the nature of this threat, short-term, medium-term, and long-term how to decide what parts of the world were truly vital, which parts of the world were peripheral, um, how to figure out what was the right mix of military spending, um, strong defense posture versus the political and psychological dimensions of strategy. What's the right balance between nuclear force and uh, conventional force? Eisenhower, interestingly, compared to some of the early stereotypes about him, was actually a fairly sophisticated strategic thinker. In fact, I would say of all the post-war presidents, he probably ranks as the most sophisticated, the person who had given the most sustained thought to issues of strategy and resource allocations throughout his long career in the military and then afterward. Um, and, and there are some core convictions that Eisenhower has, which he brings with him to the presidency. And one of them is a deep concern that with the rapid escalation of U.S. defense spending under Truman, that um, the prospect of sustaining that over the long term was very worrisome, that to try and do that might well bankrupt the United States. Um, we must not so overburden or tax the resources of the country. He testified before Congress in 1950 when he was Army Chief of Staff that we practically enslave or regiment people in the effort to keep them free from foreign aggression. To wreck our economy would be as great a victory for the Soviets as they could remotely hope in a war. And throughout this, I use the typical technique of, of the diplomatic historian 
as opposed to the international relations or comparative politics scholar. And it might be fun to talk about these different approaches in terms of, in terms of method and underlying theory in the question and answer period. But let me leave that aside for now. I, I sprinkle throughout quotes that I think are representative quotes, quotes that capture uh, people's ideas in their own words, sometimes dramatically for narrative flow, but not uh, in, in, a, in an effort to be unrepresentative or to stack the decks, as it were, by simply picking and choosing those sorts of quotes that would fit a preconceived uh, theoretical framework or interpretive framework. There's ample evidence in Eisenhower's papers that he deeply believed that there had to be a balance between appropriate levels of defense spending to meet a threat that he thought was real and serious and being circumspect enough that uh, excessive defense spending didn't wreck the very thing that you were seeking to preserve. In that sense, and of course these issues have a real contemporary ring to them, um, as, as, as anyone knows who's been following recent debates about Bush's foreign policy. But Eisenhower was deeply concerned that the steady escalating defense budgets of the Truman period simply could not be sustained and that over time they would lead to the great fear that many uh, conservatives had during this period, the development of a garrison state in the United States. Now, uh, Senator Robert Taft from this state, the grandfather, I guess, of our current governor, was probably the most articulate spokesman within the Congress with regard to the fears of the development of a garrison state. Eisenhower wasn't a Taft in that regard, but he shared many of, many of those fears, that if you develop a national security state, if you develop a government which is too strong, that over time you'll strangle individual freedoms, and individual freedoms and, and free um, the, the operation of a free market and democratic institutions are ultimately what it is you are trying to protect in the first place. So Eisenhower used this phrase, the great equation, which was meant to capture his belief that there must always be a balance between the two. Um, the very first meeting of his National Security Council after he became president, he said that their first task, and it was a, it was a critically important one, was to decide, to decide upon an appropriate defense posture without bankrupting the nation. Now, the first thing he did in that regard was uh, switch um, the essential threat assessment that lay behind Truman's uh, budget outlays and budget projections for the future when he left the presidency. The military at that time referred to a D-Day as the point in which you need to be prepared for the possibility of the Soviets initiating warfare against uh, Western Europe. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the early 50s, after the onset of the Korean War, had fixed upon the years 1954-1955 as, as what they, they called their fixed D-Day. And so based on that assumption, 
all American uh, defense planning needed to be based on being prepared for this. Now, the easiest way to save money on defense, obviously, is to challenge that premise, and that's precisely what Eisenhower did. Um, it's an interesting question whether a civilian president would have had the leeway to do this to the same extent that Eisenhower did, but given um, his impeccable credentials as a career military man and, and, and wartime hero, he certainly had much greater leeway to do this than, let's say, Adelaide Stevenson might have had he been elected and had the same predilections. So I, Eisenhower instead uh, talked about a floating D-Day, as it was called. And when, when you change from a fixed D-Day to a floating D-Day, it gave you much greater leeway to reduce defense spending without then being charged with leaving the country vulnerable to this very serious external threat. How serious the external threat is, of course, is something historians and, and uh, other scholars still debate, and we might, might want to talk about that later. But the first uh, part of what I try and do here is try and, and recreate as reasonably as I can the factors that actually shaped policy at the time, the things that people were thinking at the time. Um, Eisenhower makes this clear in an early meeting with congressional leaders, that he's cutting um, the defense budget somewhat. It's still a modest cut, but he says the time has clearly come when the United States must take conclusive account not only of the external threat posed by the Soviet Union, but of the internal threat posed by the long continuance and magnitude of federal spending. So both publicly and privately, you see the same uh, statements echoed again and again. There's, there's a remarkable consistency here. Um, Eisenhower also is extremely confident about the long term, which is another one of the inner convictions that shapes a lot of his policy. He truly believes that despite the fact that certain adverse developments have taken place internationally in recent years, that the United States and the free enterprise system, uh, the West in general, was, was simply destined to uh, survive communism. Now, Reagan's often associated with the, this idea, and certainly Reagan, by all evidence, seems to have believed this, but, but no more fervently than Eisenhower did. Um, he, would, he said things on many occasions that um, the Cold War and momentum in the Cold War would eventually shift to the United States once both sides on the East-West divide were able to see freedom and communism in their true lights. And thus a long-term strategy was what was necessary to achieve victory in the Cold War. One of the themes I, I, I certainly developed throughout this paper, and I, I think it's, an, it's a, an unavoidable theme, is that neither Eisenhower nor Kennedy nor any other post-war president who I can think of, with the possible exception of Richard Nixon, believed that they were involved in anything other than winning the Cold War. Uh, no matter how much they talked about containment and the maintenance of the status quo, ultimately what they sought was to win the Cold War. Where they differed was over the appropriate means 
to win the Cold War, and where they differed was over what dangers, what risks they were willing to run in order to advance that fundamental objective. Eisenhower does something very novel. I don't know of another post-war president or another president in American history who does something quite like this at the outset of the administration. And he decides to establish uh, three teams. And each of them are given the task of proposing a different national security strategy. One of them, what was called Task Force A and was headed by George Kennan, was given the task of, of making the case for continuance of containment. Uh, task Force B was given the assignment of making the case for a kind of containment plus, maintaining the status quo, but signaling much more clearly to the Soviet Union those areas which, it, which if it encroached upon, they would be met with immediate and automatic force on the part of the United States, a much clearer signaling. And then Task Force C was given the more provocative assignment of, of developing an aggressive plan for rolling back communism. Now, each of these uh, committees gave their reports, and then it served as the basis for the first serious meeting of the National Security Council in which Eisenhower um, presided over a discussion of which elements of these different task forces to take and to use as the foundation for the first national security statement. Uh, going back to the Truman administration, uh, the United States had developed the, um, the technique or the, the habit of developing formal National Security Council papers. The most famous was probably NSC 68 of uh, the spring of 1950 because it advocated a massive increase in U.S. defense spending. And with the Korean War, many of its uh, recommendations, in fact, did become basic policy. So when Eisenhower joins, um, when, when he moves into the Oval Office, he's essentially presiding over a defense budget, which is about three times greater than the defense budget, the last peacetime defense budget, before the onset of the Korean War. He doesn't want to reverse that so much as he wants to, to arrest the steady escalation. He wants to fix limits on that defense budget. And so what, what he, he and his advisors come up with is uh, called National Security Council paper, uh, they're all numbered, 162, slashed to because of a set of revisions that it underwent. And what's central to it, and what I want to take a few minutes to discuss with you, I go into it in this paper in, in, in more length and detail, of course, is the centrality of nuclear weapons. Given Eisenhower's um, core belief that there were finite limits on American resources and that too much um, defense spending, excessive defense spending, might ultimately wreck the very freedoms and liberties and domestic institutions that you were seeking to protect, um, it made logical sense that he would gravitate toward a greater reliance on nuclear weapons and conventional forces for the obvious reason that you could achieve significant savings and cost efficiencies with a greater reliance on a nuclear posture. Uh, uh, and so one of the 
one of the central elements of this policy paper, and I quote from it, is that the major deterrent to aggression against Europe is the manifest determination of the United States to use its atomic capability and its massive retaliatory striking power if the area is to be attacked. So there's a recognition here that whether a Soviet attack was likely or not in the short term or the medium term didn't matter. It needed to be planned for. And the best way to plan for it was not to make an investment in a massive amount of conventional forces that would be adequate to meet a far larger Soviet and Warsaw Pact um, military force, but instead to rely more on the credible threat to use nuclear weapons if push ever did come to shove. And so to do that, it became necessary to signal it publicly. And one of uh, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles's famous and almost eerie early public uh, speeches is, is known as the Massive Retaliation Speech, where he publicly stated that the United States will consider itself free to use massive retaliation at a place and at a time of its choosing, which is pretty scary stuff when you think about it. Um, essentially, he was signaling, not privately, but quite openly, that the United States reserved the right to use its nuclear weapons, presumably against the Soviet Union or China, if they embarked on aggression anywhere in the world. And it would reserve the right to do so at the time and at the place of its own choosing. So a great, much greater reliance on, on nuclear weapons is a central element of Eisenhower's, uh, what, what comes to be called the new look strategy. That was a, a term that uh, journalists pinned on it at the time and many historians still use. Another element of Eisenhower's national security strategy, which also feeds into this determination to find some cost efficiencies, is a much greater use of the CIA as an instrument to achieve American objectives um, in a more cost efficient manner. Uh, the CIA, of course, is established in 1947, and Truman uses it on a number of occasions, but it doesn't engage in what we now call regime change until the Eisenhower administration. And the two earliest and most celebrated examples of that, of course, and I just mentioned them given my space limitations here, are Iran, of course, in 1953, whose uh, reverberations uh, I think still can be felt in today's world, and Guatemala in 1954. In each case, of course, as, as a lot of historical literature has demonstrated, which is now available, neither leader, neither Mossadegh nor Arbenz were, were communists or moving toward alignment with the communists. But they were both left-leaning, and they both uh, troubled the Eisenhower administration. And they both appeared to be regimes that had sufficient internal weaknesses and vulnerabilities that the United States, through the careful use of covert support of certain indigenous forces that were already opposed to them could um, maybe push them through a door that was already somewhat open. There's a lot of legend and aura that surrounds the CIA's uh, role in these two coups. In fact, the speaker uh, who was here uh, earlier this week, Mark Gazarowski, has written perhaps the best book 
uh, and, uh, or um, the best work, I should say, on the 1953 coup. Um, so Eisenhower makes this determination to use the CIA as an instrument of policy. And, and I think like nuclear weapons, this is another way to achieve cost efficiencies and, and thus to maintain this balance that he thought was so essential. Of course, there are a number of other uses of the CIA that are, that are counterproductive. One that I, I've written about is the 1958 effort to overthrow the government of Sukarno in, in Indonesia, which turned out to be a disaster. And in 1957, a similar effort to uh, change the regime in Syria fell on uh, hard times. Uh, Eisenhower was the one, of course, who, who began the planning for what would be the ill-fated Bay of Pigs invasion that Kennedy as president authorized. So the record here is certainly mixed, but in terms of laying out what Eisenhower thought was essential to meet this uh, fundamental threat with finite resources, I think it's important to, to recognize ways in which his strategy within his own framework at least, at least has some degree of logic and consistency. He also uh, focused more on um, cultivating allies. Dulles was accused at the time of, of having caught a pactomania fever. And throughout the Eisenhower administration, there's a proliferation of bilateral and multilateral alliances, most of which are pretty marginal to overall uh, Western security interests vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China. You get the, the CETO Pact in Southeast Asia, which, which hardly could enlist any significant countries from within the region. You get the Baghdad Pact, which the Americans with the British engineer and then don't join because of their um, concern about being involved in a defense pact in view of the strength of American-Israeli ties. Um, another issue with uh, contemporary reverberations. Um, and you look at the Baghdad Pact, it only included one Arab state. It was originally intended to be a defense pact in which Arab states would uh, line up on the side of the anti-communist West. Some at the time thought that uh, Muslim states would be natural supporters of an anti-communist alliance. And there's actually this very interesting debate at the time about whether, in fact, Islam is incompatible with communism. But the only Arab state that joins the Baghdad Pact, of course, is, is Iraq. And when Iraq, the friendly pro-American Iraq regime, is, is overthrown in 1958, um, the pact doesn't change, but the name does. The Baghdad Pact would no longer work, so they decided to call it CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization, kind of a nice ring to it, comparable um, in terms of tone, if not in terms of significance, with NATO and CETO. Eisenhower also, um, and, and a recent book by Ken Osgood, who is here on a Mershon Fellowship, uh, just recently, the year before last, has written a wonderful book on Eisenhower's psychological strategy. And he makes what I think is a very persuasive case that psychological warfare, public diplomacy, 
public diplomacy and propaganda were fundamental elements of Eisenhower's overall national security strategy. He recognized that winning the hearts and minds of uncommitted peoples was essential in order for America to win the long-term Cold War. In fact, um, the, the, the conference that Alex sponsored on Friday on public diplomacy is indicative of the growing interest in this subject in our own world and, and historically, but certainly the Eisenhower administration is one of the, the first American administrations that really recognized the, the, the tools of propaganda. Interestingly, the, the term which is now used is public diplomacy. That's seen as a less offensive term. At the time, they didn't mind using the term psychological warfare. C.D. Jackson from Time Life was uh, Eisenhower's uh, trusted assistant who was in charge of what, what they typically shorthanded to psychops. And psychops was understood as something that ran the gamut from sending uh, popular jazz musicians like Louis Armstrong uh, around the world as an ambassador of goodwill. There's a recent book about that by, by Penny Von Eschen to sending the Harlem Globetrotters to setting up um, libraries funded by the USIA, cultural exhibits, the famous kitchen uh, uh, debate between Nixon and Khrushchev fits into that because it took place at an American exhibit in Moscow. So all, all of this together with Eisenhower's public speeches, especially the famous chance for peace speech in 1953 after the death of Stalin, and then two years later his open skies speech. These um, scholars now, uh, I think, are pretty much agreed, weren't serious offers. These were propaganda ploys and were understood as such within the administration. Eisenhower was striving mightily to achieve the moral high ground in the Cold War, and, and rhetoric formed part of that. In fact, there's a there's a whole subfield of, of scholars that I just became aware of uh, seven or eight years ago when I was invited to a conference who take the study of presidential rhetoric very, very seriously. And they've, they've produced some, some fascinating work, written whole books on things such as Eisenhower's chance for peace speech and his open skies speech. Well, threat perception, of course, is central to any security strategy, and it certainly plays a large role in the formulation of, of Eisenhower's strategy. Um, he believed that Soviet leaders were essentially prudent and rational men, and therefore it was highly unlikely that they would um, begin aggression against Western Europe or against the United States at a time when the United States had such a clearly decided edge in all major categories. Dulles used these words in one meeting with the National Security Council when he said the verdict of history was that the Soviet leaders had been rather cautious in exercising their power. They were not reckless, as Hitler was, but they relied primarily on the, uh, not on military force, but on the methods of subversion. So as far as intentions are concerned, there was a consensus at the highest levels of the Eisenhower administration that the Soviets did not have particularly um, hostile military intentions. They were not about to launch aggression, 
any aggressive attacks. However, good intelligence always has to marry uh, an assessment of intentions with an assessment of capabilities. And on the capability front, there were some differences within the administration, and, and this is true throughout the 1950s and then into the early years of the Kennedy administration. The Soviet Union clearly did have nuclear weapons, and after 1954, they had thermonuclear weapons, which the United States first achieved two years earlier. And I'm sure, as most of you know, these, these weapons were exponentially more powerful than the weapons dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, roughly 1,000 times greater. When um, tests were, were uh, held, I think it was in the Pacific in 1954, the powerful Bravo tests, Eisenhower, Dulles, and many others were really quite amazed at uh, the, the uh, depth of the destruction that occurred. Eisenhower at the, at the time used, um, atomic war will destroy civilization. There will be millions of people dead. If the Kremlin and Washington ever lock up in a war, the results are too horrible to contemplate. And there are a number of statements of this sort throughout the, um, the once classified record of the Eisenhower administration. For instance, in January of 1956, another quote I include in this, this essay, he told the members of the NSC that they needed to keep in mind that no one is going to be the winner in a nuclear war. The destruction might be such that we might ultimately have to go back to bows and arrows. Now, he seems to have been unusually sensitive for a person of his generation, military or civilian, on what a nuclear war would actually mean. And I think there's a developing consensus among scholars now that this was a, a key factor in shaping his strategy. What's, what's more contentious about scholar among, among current scholars of Eisenhower is exactly what that led him to do. I think the evidence suggests that he pushed the administration deliberately into a kind of all-or-nothing stance. And this formed one of the major criticisms that Kennedy launched toward the Eisenhower administration during the campaign of 1960. In other words, Eisenhower didn't buy the notion of limited war. You might remember that uh, a then somewhat obscure academic from Harvard named Henry Kissinger wrote a book which became uh, probably one of the great surprise bestsellers of the post-war period uh, on precisely that topic, limited nuclear war. It had come into vogue in intellectual circles that there were ways that one could calibrate any kind of a nuclear conflict, that you could manage this, and crisis management was another term much in vogue at that time. Eisenhower didn't buy any of it. Eisenhower, Eisenhower went back to, to Clausewitz, the strategist that he had first become acquainted with at West Point. And Clausewitz had argued in his, his classic um, uh, treatise on, on war that there's a natural tendency in any conflict for adversaries to use all of the weapons available to them. And Eisenhower believed that what was true for the Napoleonic period would also be true for the nuclear age. In other words, Eisenhower, unlike some of his military uh, advisors, 
the Joint Chiefs of Staff truly believed that limited war was not a serious option. And so instead, he believed that by, and I think one of the best books on this is, is by uh, Campbell Craig called Destroying the Village. Um, everyone doesn't agree with all of his conclusions, but I think the evidence is pretty persuasive with regard to his notion that Eisenhower deliberately pursued an all-or-nothing strategy because that way he figured it was far, far less likely for nuclear conflict to actually emerge, and he was pretty sure that if a nuclear confrontation did emerge, it would rapidly escalate to what was called at the time general war. And general war meant playing out what was called the Strategic Integrated Operation Plan, and that rather innocuous-sounding plan was based on the United States using all of the nuclear warheads in its arsenal against the Soviet Union and against China. In other words, every significant military and industrial site would be hit. That's what general war meant. Eisenhower knew that's what general war meant, and Eisenhower had a pretty good sense of how disastrous that would be to the United States and Western Europe as well as to the Soviet Union. The tricky part of, of um, Eisenhower's second term in office, though, was the fact that intercontinental ballistic missiles were beginning to be developed and the Soviets appeared to have the lead. The famous Sputnik launching of 1957 uh, generated an increased anxiety throughout the United States. Eisenhower appointed a committee to look into it, the Gaither Committee. He was pretty sure they would come back with a, 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 a not-to-worry not report. They didn't. In fact, they came back with an alarmist report that infuriated him, and it created a kind of public furor about what was then called the missile gap. Uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, uh, of course, makes um, great political capital out of this, and apparently he genuinely believed that it existed. Uh, when he ran in, in 1960. Uh, the United States, of course, was engaged in surveillance oversights of Soviet uh, territory through the famous U-2 high-flying planes. Um, the first one, uh, well, they were, in, they were originally um, impervious to Soviet uh, defense systems until in 1960. In the spring, one was uh, shot down, and the, the, the pilot, of course, Francis Gary Powers, uh, appeared live. He wasn't supposed to be live. He was supposed to have killed himself with the uh, cyanide capsule that the CIA gave all of their pilots. But when, when it actually came down to it, he made the decision that I think many of us would have made under those circumstances, and he chose life. Um, but the U-2 flights did give Eisenhower certainly uh, a pretty good sense that Soviet missile development was far less advanced than many of his critics believed. But it's hard to prove a negative, and the Soviet Union is a pretty big country. And even if it was, was pretty well covered, you could not actually prove that they didn't have the number of intercontinental ballistic missiles that they claimed to have. And Khrushchev, of course, made, made much of this boast. Uh, we're, we're turning out missiles like sausages, he said in one of his, uh, his famous comments. Well, to, re to, to achieve serious savings in defense, Eisenhower believed that U.S. troops needed to be withdrawn from Europe. And this becomes one of the most controversial aspects of his um, defense 
strategy and, and, and foreign policy. And, and it, until fairly recently, it really hasn't been recognized as such a fundamental issue. It has enormous ramifications for the Cold War overall and, and for Soviet perceptions and fears. Eisenhower believed that U.S. troops were not, never intended to be stationed on European soil on a permanent basis. And so his intention was to withdraw them as soon as possible. But to do so, that required that Western European countries picked up more of the cost of NATO, which they were not willing to do at this time. Moreover, Europeans felt that the removal of American troops would decouple America from Europe, and that would then make Europe more vulnerable to the Soviet Union. And so these are, these are psychological and political factors, uh, every bit as much as they are strategic factors. In, in fact, um, I think uh, a constructivist framework makes a great deal more sense for looking at American policy, if you can apply that to, to foreign policy, then does a classic realist or neo-realist framework. Clearly, agency is of fundamental importance here, and perceptions of threat and perceptions of identity are every bit as important, in my judgment, as some of the harder things that are often um, you know, given prominence in the work of historians and international relations specialists. So the European initiative essentially um, becomes moribund because of European opposition. U.S. troops remain in Europe during Eisenhower's presidency. None are removed, and he himself considered that one of the great failures of his strategy. But he flirts with the idea of giving European nations, especially Britain, France, and yes, Germany, control over nuclear weapons, control at least over, over battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons. Now, the idea that the Federal Republic of Germany would be given control over nuclear weapons, which was certainly found out fairly quickly in Moscow, appears at least um, in, the, in the important work of Mark uh, Trachtenberg to be a major issue in terms of the lead up to the Berlin crisis of 1958 and the Berlin crisis, um, the renewal of the Berlin crisis in 1961, arguably the two most significant European crises in the period between 1945 and 1991. Now, I, in this paper, I, I offer a critique of, of some of the elements of Eisenhower's strategy, and I don't, I don't want to go into that. Um, here, I, I want to save enough time for, for um, discussion and conversation about these issues, and I'm particularly interested in what um, comparative politics and IR and foreign policy specialists from social science disciplines um, have to say about this kind of, of an approach, which, which I think is, is very classic diplomatic history. Uh, the, the method is not um, particularly foregrounded here, and the theory is very, very light. So that might be something well worth thinking about. Also, this is a paper I have until the end of the year to revise before it's published, so I genuinely welcome comments. Let me just mention Kennedy briefly by way of contrast, and then we'll open things up. Kennedy, of, of course, 
uh, critiques Eisenhower because of what he believes is an over-reliance on nuclear weapons. And under Kennedy and under his defense secretary, McNamara, there is a, a renewed interest in the idea of limited nuclear war, finding a middle path between Eisenhower's all-or-nothing approach. And so Kennedy emphasizes strongly what, what comes to be called his signature innovation, and that is flexible response, the idea that you must be able to respond to this Soviet-Chinese threat uh, at all levels, from conventional